This is Politics Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. Tom Nichols writes for The Atlantic and is a professor of national security affairs at the Naval War College. In particular, he's an expert on nuclear strategy. He's written a book proposing changes to how the U.S. approaches nuclear weapons. For many of us who are under 40 or so, the danger of nuclear weapons has always fortunately felt somewhat far away. Elementary schoolers no longer have to hide under their desks for bomb drills, and that's a blessing. But it's also perhaps given us a false sense of security. In recent years, it's been especially easy to forget that tens of thousands of machines are still essentially sitting on a hair trigger, and that humans have the ability to decide to use them. Tom is not someone who's forgotten about this. In fact, he's one of the world's leading experts on how these pieces fit together with current events. The war in Ukraine has rekindled important conversations about relations between nuclear powers, about the importance of dialogue, and about the importance of having open, honest lines of communication between those powers, not only to deter attacks, but to prevent misunderstandings or other escalations that could lead to catastrophe. We talked to Tom about all of this in depth. Like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a longer conversation that was taped live with audience questions. For information on how to join us and past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode coming this Monday. Our co-founders, Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, led the interview. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. I was wondering if you could compare and contrast a little bit just how the Kremlin and Putin and the military industrial complex operates today and how that is different from what we saw maybe during the height of the Cold War or any specific era in the Cold War that you think is specifically important to make this comparison. Well, the most important thing to understand about the difference between Putin's Russia and the old Soviet Union is that the Soviet Union and the West were fighting an ideological war. And in a way, you can see Putin's nostalgia for that, because he would really like that to be what this war is about, about some big ideological, you know, the decadent West versus the righteous Christian East. During the Cold War, it was the the ideology was Soviet communism. It was Marxism-Leninism and the notion that the Soviet socialist system was a superior form of social and political organization and that its goal was to spread across the globe and defeat the West. That That's one thing that's different now, one thing that's missing. This isn't some globe-spanning, you know, holistic ideology that is meant to take over the entire world. This is more like a return to the Russian empire But it's also infused with Putin's nostalgia for the Soviet Union. It's really interesting. Putin misses everything about the Soviet Union except the communism part, which I think you would totally understand because he's the richest, one of the richest men in the world now. And so there's this weird blending of Russian hypernationalism, Christian, you know, kind of Russian or because there's a very strong religious element to this war, this Russian Orthodox Slavic Russian messianism that's been around for hundreds of years in Russian political culture, where the patriarch is clearly a symbol now of state power. He calls Putin's reign a miracle of God. 
I've been to churches, many churches in Russia. There are many faithful Orthodox Christians in them, but um, this is a, a completely separate thing where the patriarch has decided that he is going to bless a war of an Orthodox country of his own, nominally an Orthodox country, against another country that is a majority Orthodox believers. And the people in the East, in particular in Ukraine and to the North outside of Kiev, who are getting killed are overwhelmingly Orthodox believers. The Western regions of Ukraine have a higher percentage of Catholics, but this war is primarily being conducted by Russia against fellow Orthodox Christians. And I think it's just appalling. One might even say sinful. Given your knowledge of all the different Soviet leaders that we've had, are there any in particular that remind you of Putin in the way that he exercises power and his personality as a leader? Which one of them, if any, stand out to you as the one that's the closest analog? I think it's an unfair comparison. The obvious go-to answer is always Stalin because of his, you know, ferocious appetite for territory. But One thing that's important to understand about the Soviet leaders, every one of them personalized the system of power, including even kind of boring, dull guys like Brezhnev. Gorbachev tried, didn't have his heart in it. There's a reason Gorbachev was the last Soviet leader, because he didn't go in for stuff like that. Andropov really didn't live long enough to do that. When I think of Putin, I think of Andropov. That personalization of power in terms of the grip inside the Kremlin, you know, using all the wiles of a secret police goon, I think that's the best comparison. But the thing that's unfair, I started to say, I don't mean unfair, let me say inaccurate, is that Soviet leaders had to govern by a committee. They were the general secretary was the personalization of Soviet power, but it very much was a collective leadership. They had that simply was part of the deal of becoming the leader of the party because there were no elections, there were no there wasn't any kind of appeal to the public. And so, you know, Putin in that sense is a kind of new kind of creature. He has relied on the apparatus of elections which, you know, the first time out, I think he won fair and square. I actually was very optimistic that Russia could somehow maintain this democratic momentum from the mid 90s. Um, and I'm, I'm sadly, I was wrong. I don't think, in that sense, that Putin is really classifiable along with these other Soviet leaders. But the one he would, I think, if you asked him, the one he aspires to emulate is Andropov, because I, I think there were a lot of Russians who, Soviet citizens at the time, who admired Andropov and thought he was going to kick asses and kind of put everybody back in line. And I think that's what Putin aspired to. Your Andropov, let me say this, your Andropov scared the hell out of me as a Soviet leader because he was tough and he was very competent and he was very intelligent. Putin scares me because he's basically a thug and has the instincts of a thug. Again, if you asked him who he'd want to be, I think Andropov, but without the giving up too early on the Cold War and dying part. So, Tom, before the recent spats with Russia and not speaking to experts like yourself and other folks like Daniel Dresner, the U.S. media portrayed Putin uh, like you just described Andropov. And I'm wondering, do you have any insight into why mainstream media generally across the spectrum in the U.S. portrayed Putin as this great, tough 
man of character with strategy who was also ruthless? Was it because that he was just getting the better of us in places like Ukraine and with cybersecurity and other issues? Well, I think it's hard to disentangle this from how we first encountered Putin in the West over 20 years ago. Remember that after 9-11, you know, the first phone call to the White House after 9-11 is from Putin. And he calls up and says, we're very sorry. How can we help? And there was a sense, I think, in Washington, and I certainly felt it studying these things at the time, that the Russians and the Americans had a real common cause here. I went to Moscow about two weeks after 9-11. And one of my Russian friends, you know, met me and we were in Moscow and he said, you know, my deep condolences on what happened to your country. And then he nodded and he looked at me and he said, now you know how we feel. And he meant in our war with the Chechens and the things that had happened you know, terrorist incidents and the Caucasus and Grozny and places like that. And there was this sense, I think, in Washington that, you know, Putin's not the nicest guy in the world. No Russian leader is. Nobody gets to be the president of Russia by being a nice guy, even Boris Yeltsin. But that we had a lot of interests in common. We were signing arms control treaties. Putin was giving speeches. Again, you have to remember that there was a different Putin in those days. He was giving speeches right up until 2007 saying, it's stupid to think of invading your neighbors. Nobody can really impose their system of government. That's old thinking from, you know, the old times. Um, Obviously, you know, we're a member of the Atlantic community and the European family and on and on and on and on. So, you know, be a little forgiving here of some of the folks, including me, but also a lot of people in Washington and London and other places who said, okay, not not an angel, but, you know, somebody who we can basically get along with, because that was the line coming from Moscow for years, for almost a decade. So the question is, what changed? I think if you ask the Russia expert community, you'll get some divisions. Most of them will say he was always a son of a bitch. He hit it well. We believed what we wanted to believe about him until it was too late. I'm not sure I buy that. I'm in a, I'm in a minority of analysts who would say, I think there were things that disheartened him, including policies that the Bush administration and then the Obama administration carried out after 2004, 2005, 2006. But I think the most important determinant of turning him into who he is, is that he just decided he had to stay in power forever. That he wasn't ever going to step down. He was going to change the Russian constitution. When people would ask me, is Putin going to come back? And I'd say, well, they'd have to change the constitution to do that. I don't think they've got the votes to change the constitution. And boy, you know, deals were made. Um, Legislators, you know, were brought on board and they just got together and said, "Okay, constitution has changed. No more of the because there was a two term limit on the Russian president. And now he basically has decided, I think, like a mob boss, that the only way he is safe is to stay in power forever. And this last escapade in Ukraine, I have no evidence to know this. I have no facts about it. Increasingly, though, the the idea that he is ill or thinking about the end of his life in some way, I just wonder if that's something that's going on here as well that's kind of pushed him this one step more. But you know, when you talk about how could how could we not have seen it, it was a very different Vladimir Putin that was going G8 meetings back, you know, in, in 2002. It was a different world and he was a different person, at least in public, that we could tell. 
Yes, he was. And I want to just compare and contrast one more thing before we start to get more into nuclear phase of this discussion. So we've had Julia Davis on the show. And folks, uh, if you haven't listened to our podcast, at least go find her on Twitter. She's been really on the Russian propaganda. And that's what we had her on the show for, Tom. And I, and I saw you retweeted her recently. But she she recently tweeted out a portion of their I don't know, their main propaganda show. And they were basically saying they need to change over their economy to some type of wartime socialism because they're not able to meet the needs of their military. The military industrial complex in Russia and the economy is just not suited to carry out this war. So I'm very curious and want your take. Was the Russian military industrial complex this weak and corrupt during the USSR? Has globalization and the intertwining of economies and specialized parts really had an impact on their economy? Or what's going on here where you have their main propaganda show advocating for a new wartime economy just to meet the needs of a military operation that's, what, four months in? Be careful about, I think Julia would probably tell you the same thing. Be careful about how much stock you put in those talking heads on Russian media because they are bat crap crazy. I mean, <laughs> to they put are, it kindly. <laughs> you know, in a sense, they are, yeah, I mean, this is like the talk show, you know, Fox Newsifying of Russian media where they just get on there and they sell. And you can look, I mean, watch some of them, even if you don't speak Russian, there are subtitles. And you can see other people, you know, <laughs> Uh, there's always other panelists who are looking at them going, wow, you know, that's nuts. Um, there was a guy today, there's a clip Julia posted today and had a guy talking about, about how Western liberals were always the real Nazis and how, you know, liberalism and Nazism. And it was this big word salad. And you can see the other three guys on the panel sort of smirking and kind of looking off and like, yeah, whatever. Okay, dude. So there's a lot of that performative um, nonsense that goes on on Russian television. So I wouldn't put too much stock in that. I mean, again, you know, this is the same Russian television that runs graphics of how an underwater nuclear torpedo could cause a tsunami in London, um, you know, that kind of nonsense. But the point about the military industrial complex in the Soviet Union, there was a lot of corruption, but there was much stronger centralized power. And you did actually have to produce results that. You know, it was a command economy that operated very inefficiently, but the one part of its economy that the command center really cared about was military industrial spending. So they had a bloated, ineffective, wasteful military sector. But the way they solved that was to just drown it in money and manpower. And they produced a lot of good stuff. I mean, they produced stuff that worked in its time. I mean, we're watching T-72 tanks, you know, get popped like jacks in the box. But in its day, the T-72 was a kind of cutting edge tank. I shouldn't say that. Not a great tip, but it was a good serviceable tank and they had a lot of them. What happened now is that after their performance in Georgia in 2008, which was really shabby, this new defense minister Sergei Shoigu was brought in and he was made, you know, he started walking around in uniforms and big hats as their defense ministers often, unfortunately, do. And he said, well, I'm going to fix all this corruption. And of course, he didn't. I think part of what we're seeing is that none of them in the inner circle really ever expected to have to go to this big of a war. And they didn't think that basically, you know, making defective cruise missiles and shabby tanks was ever going to catch up with them. 
So I overestimated, again, you know, maybe that's my Soviet hangover. I certainly overestimated the potential of the Russian military here. I also overestimated the command and control problem, um, the command and control effectiveness. I mean, the fact that they've lost a dozen generals because every time something goes wrong, they have to send a general up to the front to, to like unscrew whatever's going on is really amazing. And again, I think it, it basically says, all that stuff that Putin's been told about how they're fixing up the military and solving all these problems turned out to be a lie. I think that's one of the reasons today during this Victory Day thing, you didn't see Putin go all in and we're going to mobilize and we're going to rev up the military industrial complex and all that stuff. He can't. It's not there's no there there. So, yes, you know, to answer the basic question, the Soviet military was a lot better constructed in its day because it was trying to keep up with the United States, the Russian military is a hot mess. Even when their weapons, I'll say, and I'll get off this soapbox, but even when their weapons are supposedly cutting edge, like a lot of their fighter aircraft, they simply don't train enough. They don't spend enough time training. They don't spend enough time, you know, learning and, you know, educating and training their officers so that even their pilots wouldn't even qualify to fly under NATO rules because they simply don't fly enough hours. And so, the, you know, there's just a lot of really bad hangovers from the Soviet period that where the Soviets thought that they could solve all their problems with superior numbers, with serviceable weapons and superior numbers, that with enough T-72s and, and MiG-25s, you could prevail for a week on the battlefield. This military has just been kind of bumbling along, trying to figure out what to build and why, while everybody around them is getting rich. I mean, it's a, it's a disaster. And that's why you've had all these, you know, this disastrous military performance in Ukraine. So, Tom, I want to move this conversation towards one of the major topics that we have planned today. And one of the reasons that we had you here in the show was because of your expertise and knowledge of nuclear security. And as we've seen this war escalate, there's been more and more questions about the risk of nuclear escalation. So for those of us in my generation and Justin's generation, for us, the nuclear question is often so abstract. It never feels to us as though we've gotten that close to a real nuclear confrontation. And in 1962, we all know about the famous Cuban Missile Crisis and how close we got to a nuclear conflict then. But there's been other times right. since then that we've also come very close and you mentioned some of them in your recent pieces in The Atlantic. I'm wondering if you could tell the audience a little bit more about that. What are some of the other times that we've come really close to a nuclear confrontation and how real really was the risk in those circumstances? Well, anytime nuclear forces are on alert or leaders are thinking about the use of nuclear weapons, it's a risk. The chance of somebody making a bad decision or misinterpreting something, you know, is not zero and it's happened. You mentioned Cuba uh, in 1973. Nixon put our President Nixon put our nuclear forces on a heightened status of alert to try to warn the Soviets off from invading the Middle East during the Yom Kippur War. The Soviets chose not to do that. In later years, former Soviets said, "Oh, we were bluffing. We would never have done it." I'm not so sure. Nixon made a nuclear threat. They saw it. They decided it wasn't worth the candle. So they backed off. But there have been accidents in the 70s, twice in the late 70s. NORAD called Brzezinski, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, and said, 
Um, we've got a big inbound attack. You're going to have to wake up the president. I think one of them was in the afternoon. You're going to have to go and tell the president, you know, there's a problem. And both of those times it was a mistake. A famous, now famous incident that we didn't know about was that in um, 1983, a Soviet air defense officer was on duty in the middle of the night and they got a warning that there was a limited launch. I think it was something like five ICBMs against the Soviet Union from the United States. And they said, what do you want to do? And this this lieutenant colonel who happened to be on duty said, I don't think that makes any sense. Uh, I don't think, you know, the Americans are going to launch five weapons. I know I'm supposed to report this in and, you know, push all the buttons and wake everybody up. But I want to get confirmation on this. And he waited. And sure enough, it turned out to be some kind of mistaken alarm. He was actually reprimanded for this, but, you know, also congratulated for averting World War Three. 1983 in particular was an intensely dangerous year from late 82 until Andropov dies in 84. I mean, this is really a scary time where, you know, the United States and NATO practiced a drill for the release of nuclear weapons in Europe called Able Archer. We have evidence that the Soviets started to kind of pull the tarps off of things because they were concerned that this was a real attack being conducted under the guise of an exercise. It was the year that um, the Soviets shot down a fully loaded civilian airliner in South Korean civilian airliner that had strayed into their airspace, killed 269 people, including a member of Congress. The United States overthrew a pro-Soviet regime in Grenada. I mean, this was really, I mean, I would say 1983 in general was the year that anything could have gone wrong and that the situation as a Soviet, uh, one of the Soviet Politburo members thundered in private. And we know all this stuff through declassified channels now thundered in private that the situation was white hot. And I think he wasn't wrong. I went my first trip to the Soviet Union was in 1983, was 22 years old, and people kept walking up to me and saying, why does your president want to start a nuclear war? The smell was of cordite was in the air. It was, we were all waiting for it and expecting it. Now, shortly thereafter, early 85, Gorbachev comes in, we managed to ramp down a lot of these threats. But even, even in 1995, the Norwegians launched a weather a rocket with a weather satellite on it. And they brought in the nuclear football, the nuclear control briefcase to Yeltsin and said, we don't know what's going on, but we just saw a missile lift off from a NATO country. And, you know, again, Yeltsin and a few others went, I don't know, you know, Bill Clinton wouldn't do this to me. And certainly not with one. And apparently it was just a mistake. The Norwegians had informed the Russians, hey, we're going to do this launch. And um, some, you know, as John F. Kennedy said, there's always some dumb son of a bitch who doesn't get the word. And apparently that's what happened. So I'm very concerned about that now because there is a war going on in Europe and Putin is very desperate. I think it was very smart of Joe Biden not to raise American nuclear status when Putin claimed to raise Russia's nuclear status. I'm not sure that he really did it. I think he may have said it on public television, but we didn't notice any movement in the Russian nuclear arsenal, but who knows what's going on behind the scenes. So, you know, as long as we all have nuclear weapons pointed at each other on a 15 to 20 minute launch window, we're in mortal peril. And I think it's easy to forget that, especially, no offense, guys, especially if you're young um, and you didn't grow up with it. So 
A lot of things have changed, but the fact that Russia and the United States could destroy each other in about 30 minutes is still a fact of life. Uh, Tom, really, these people that you've mentioned, you know, that gentleman in, in 1983 who was skeptical that there was really a strike incoming. I mean, these are some of the great heroes of humanity. They saved all of us just by catching these mistakes. Dumb luck. They escalated. I mean, we should know their names. You know, these are the, the great heroes of, of history. But I think what you've really highlighted in this narrative is the danger of that miscalculation, that it could be a mistake not anything more malicious that leads to a nuclear war. And this is, in a way, much more frightening because it puts all of our lives at the feet of the people in these positions who have to avoid these kinds of mistakes, these manual and human errors that can happen. And I'm wondering, could you tell us a little bit more about what kind of mechanisms do we have to avoid those miscalculations and mistakes that could be so deadly? Are there lines of contact between the U.S. and the Kremlin that can check on a situation like this where there is uncertainty about what might be occurring. Do we have anything in place other than that simple human check that can prevent something like this from happening? In theory, we do. And, you know, you mentioned the heroes that have saved us. I mean, they wouldn't say they were heroes. They would say it was just dumb luck and gut instinct. I mean, Petrov, Stanislav Petrov, the Soviet officer said, I just didn't believe it. I mean, it just didn't seem right. Now, you know, if there had been if it had been a false alarm with, say, 100 nuclear weapons, he, which is the false alarm that was given to our guy, to Brzezinski, back in 79, he might have called the Politburo. Um, some other officer might have called up the Soviet leadership and said, I don't know what's going on here, but I see this thing on the computer. You know, this is where the international situation really matters, because if it's Bill Clinton and Boris Yeltsin, and somebody says, well, we've just seen some kind of launch. Boris Yeltsin goes, yeah, I know Bill Clinton. That's not going to happen. But in 1983, where you had Reagan and Andropov, both you know, on a nice edge in a constant war of words and proxy fights in places like Grenada, that could have gone sideways really fast. You're asking about the checks. I mean, well, we have a hotline. We have a direct line to Moscow through, uh, used to be a teletype. I think now I understand, my understanding it's an email. But, you know, that assumes the guy on the other side picks up the phone. Putin and Biden don't speak anymore. The, apparently the highest level contact is Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, who apparently can call Nikolai Petrushev, the head of the Russian Security Council, and apparently that line is still open. But those lines are only as good as the willingness to use them. We have lines right now open between our military commands to deconflict our military forces in, in Europe so that you know we can pick up the phone and say, hey, we're you know, we're flying through this area and we think we see you and do you see us and let's not shoot at each other. You know, Roger, got it. That's you. That's us. Okay, goodbye. But that's all that line is for. We had one of those in Syria. So no, there really isn't any reliable thing that could tell you that you're wrong other than just waiting to see if actual nuclear weapons land on you before you shoot back. The situation is particularly dangerous because both of us, the Russians and the Americans, keep these forces on a very short trigger so that they can't be destroyed on the ground by a surprise attack, which I think is crazy. I think that with the Cold War over, we don't need to vest the entire power of launch in just the president. We did that 
to make it clear to the Soviets that we have unity of command on nuclear weapons, but I, I don't think that's really necessary anymore. In the end, it is still, there are two weak links, technology and human beings, and both of them can go wrong, unfortunately. I think, you know, we've gotten through 70 years of this by being pretty damn lucky and just hoping our, our luck holds out a little longer. So, Tom, I wanted to move to purposeful escalation, which you and many other, what I would think is smart and sober minds have been against. And then on the opposite side of the spectrum, you have folks like Adam Kinzinger calling for a U.S. no-fly zone in Ukraine. Considering the backdrop you just gave us of how nuclear disaster and Holocaust has been averted by dumb luck. Can you get into why suggesting a no-fly zone in Ukraine with American, it would be troops on the ground, in this case, troops in the air, just is not a serious policy suggestion? Is it purely because we don't have grade one interests in Ukraine? Or is it a combination of the nuclear and not wanting to get into a direct conflict with Russia head on when the benefits may not be that great? There's a third option here, which is that the peace of Europe, the peace and stability of Europe is a vital American interest. But you don't keep Europe peaceful and stabilized by starting World War III. And I know that there are people like Kinzinger and many others who say we're already in World War III. I think that's silly. If World War III starts, you'll know it. This is a major regional war. This is a you know very serious conflict between a large power and a middle power, Russia and Ukraine. The middle power is winning or at least holding its own for now. But that would change if um, the Americans directly, along with their NATO partners, started inflicting major casualties one-on-one against the Russians, because the Russians would feel the need. And under the laws of war, if there's any of that left, would strike back at the forces and the bases that are supplying those forces. You know, I don't think Americans, I've mentioned this to Congressman Kinzinger, and I've had this conversation with other people. I mean, it's a terrible idea because I don't think anybody's thinking through what happens if the Russians decide to fight back. I think there's a lot of script writing going on that, well, we'll just fly in will pound the daylights out of some Russian positions on the front. The Russians will fold and go home. Well, okay. Or they could choose to attack by various means, non-nuclear means. They could choose to attack air bases and other areas inside NATO from which those attacks originated. Well, what do we do then? Do we attack inside Russia? And at that point, the Russians decide you know, to repel... Maybe they choose to repel those air attacks with a nuclear weapon. Then what do we do? You have to think through all these branches of possible conflict. And I think everybody's kind of beating their chest and saying, oh, don't worry about it. You know, we hand them their asses and they'll just fold. Maybe, or they may try and strike back, or, you know, they may do something reckless and stupid. I mean, I think that this goes back to this problem of accidental war. You're you're asking me about intentionality. I think that there is a path to nuclear escalation that just goes through Putin being reckless and dumb, because right now, for two months, Putin has been reckless and dumb. Now, you asked about the best arguments on the other side. The argument on the other side of this is this is self-deterrence that we are paralyzed by our own, our own fear of escalation. And that means we are ineffective. 
I think that is simply nonsense. So the Russians would say, nonsense. it's just simply nonsense. And I think the proof of that is that we've been doing quite a lot and helping the Ukrainians defeat the Russians in battle after battle and without directly engaging Russian forces. And I think that the false choice that Kinzinger and Bill Taylor and Evelyn Farkas and all these other people have said is that either we're directly confronting Russia or we're doing nothing. And the fact is we're doing a hell of a lot of stuff to the point where Putin is really pretty angry about it. And I think itching to strike some of those supply and logistical lines into Ukraine. I think what he really wants is a war with NATO so that he can say that when it's over, he lost to NATO rather than Ukraine. But I think even Putin doesn't quite have a plan B for what happens if things in a conflict with NATO go sideways. There's a reason that nuclear strategists have always studied World War I rather than World War II as their preferred model for how we get to an all-out conflict. And I think that's especially in this situation of, you know, you Russians versus Ukrainians, the things going bad, defeats on the battlefield. This feels a lot more like 1914 than it does like 1939 to me. That is very interesting. And I wanted to pick up just where you left off a, a little bit, not about World War One, but about how cautious the Biden administration has been, right? They haven't obviously been out there calling for no-fly zones. But even to take it a step further, until I think mid-April, roughly, Tom, they had been really hesitant on sending certain drones, sending certain artillery and heavy weaponry, and really up-leveling the support we were giving Putin because they didn't want to see it as escalatory. Fast forward to May 9th right now, and a bunch of this heavy artillery is just flowing in. It's flowing into Ukraine and it, with 40-kilometer range and more and so on and so forth. So I'm wondering, do you think something changed within the intelligence community and the way that they were projecting how Putin may want to escalate things if we did make that next step and provide these type of weapons? Or did something change with our allies that pressured the Biden administration into making this next step? Or what the heck happened? We as Americans were told that they wouldn't provide these weapons, and now all of a sudden they are, and we don't really see any negative consequences. Well, I'm going to take issue with a few of your premises of your question. First of all, I'll say it wasn't our allies. I mean, if anything, we're the ones that have moved our allies, I think at least several of our allies, to get on board here. We, that hasn't been working very well with Germany, but even Germany is you know, picking up the pace. I don't think it was pressure from the allies. I think Part of what you're seeing is just the normal lumbering stupidity of the American foreign policy bureaucracy, which is, you know, how would we actually do this? How do you, what do we send? Who can okay that? How do we, how does it get there? But there are two, I think, bigger kind of strategic issues that came up and that have changed. One is, I think a lot of people, including me, including other people in Washington, thought, look, this thing isn't going to go the distance. Putin may not win in a week, but he could win in 10 days or two weeks, if winning is seizing big chunks of Ukraine, sitting on them and then kind of calling a timeout. And I think that's one thing that changed is that they kept losing. And we said, okay, you know, this thing's going to go on and we can help them. But the other is that Putin's, you know, the brutality of this war really picked up the pace. After things like Bucha, you're just not going to step back from that. I mean, that's that led to Biden's famous outburst now of, you know, my God, this man can't stay in power. And so I think some of it was that the initial shock wore off 
the expectation that the Ukrainians would lose wore off. The valiant counterattacks that were working using Western arms showed that the Ukrainians actually can do this and that the Russians have really upped the violence that and just inflamed the conscience of a lot of people who might have argued for a more go slow approach. The thing I would take issue with is you referred to the Biden administration's hesitancy. I don't see that at all. I see it as deliberateness, which is different. The Germans are hesitant. That's been clear. The German, there's been a lot of hesitancy among the Germans and some among the French, I would say, um, par- partly because of their political situation going into that election. But I think with the Biden administration, it's been deliberate and resolved. I think it's been some of the best handling of a foreign policy crisis in the past 40 years. So, Tom, I do like the way that you characterize it as deliberate. The U.S. are providing support, but they're drawing a very clear line. And that line is that we're not going to get into a direct conflict with Russia. And I'm curious to hear from you about the big, big question here, which is nuclear deterrence in the 21st century, right? So, The U.S. drawing this line here and saying we're not going to get in direct conflict with Russia, this seems to suggest that the theory behind nuclear deterrence is holding very well in the 21st century, that these two great powers that are both nuclear armed are not willing to fight each other directly because of that risk. But we can also look at stuff like the Cargill War and see how there actually have been instances where two nuclear powers, India and Pakistan, that situation, were willing to fight directly. So... How do we look at nuclear deterrence today, Tom? I know it's a big, big question, but taking the lessons that we can take from the way that this war has unfolded so far, do you think that we can draw any conclusions about the force of nuclear deterrence in the world today? I think it still works. You know, you bring up Cargill. I think the fact that India and Pakistan haven't gone to war with nuclear weapons, considering, you know, the depth of enmity there tells you something about the sobering influence of nuclear weapons. I think as long as nuclear weapons, there's a lot of disagreement about whether to call it a taboo or a tradition. Henry Kissinger once referred to it as nuclear virginity that, you know, once it's lost, you can't get it back. But I think, you know, everyone is hesitant to be the first people to fire a nuclear weapon in anger. I think that's, I don't have any good guess about you know who in Moscow might be saying this, but I imagine there there are even people saying, okay, for years we've dined out on the Americans being the only people that ever used a nuclear weapon against anybody, and what seventy five years later we're going to be the ones that are going to step into that breach and say and us. Um, so you know there is a there is a kind of constrictive taboo on this as well as the perfectly normal human fear that the use of these things will get out of control. There are arguments among, I mean, I've been accused of this. I I once had a colleague say, well, I was at a conference and one of my colleagues said, Tom's a, if you use one, you're going to use them all kind of guy. And I said, well, I don't know that that's, it has to be that way. But I think that once you use one, the prohibition against using many more until it gets out of control, you know, starts to dissolve. But on the other side, there are people who would argue that you could use them in onesies and twosies and five or 10 or 12 and not start a global thermonuclear war. I personally think that's nuts. I think that's the kind of thing people say to themselves when they've spent their lives studying nuclear weapons and they've gotten too close and too comfortable with their own subject. But it's out there. It's an argument that's out there. The question is, you know, what kind of thinking is there in Moscow about this? 
One little clue about this that I think is, you know, a little glimmer of light in this is that after the end of the Cold War, the Americans and defense contractors and, you know, the American government funded all this research where we went and talked to actual Soviet generals who were now out of power, retired. And we said, you know, basically, we said, come on, you guys, you can tell us, were you you that cold blooded? You know, were you willing to do it? And they basically said, look, we were as scared of it as you were. We had a pretty healthy fear of these things, just like you did. It's not to say we wouldn't have used them. It's not to say it was impossible. I interviewed a four-star Russian general, former Soviet general, many years ago. He's the deputy commander of operations, Gadiev, who had been instrumental in planning Afghanistan. Really brilliant guy and urbane and funny and interesting. But I walked out of his office and I thought he'd have done it. I've met American generals where I've walked out of their office going, yep, that guy would have done it. But I think, you know, the little glimmer of light here is that the Soviet Soviet officers, a lot of Soviet officers said to us, yeah, no, we're not monsters. We are, we are actually as concerned about this as you are. We're not, I shouldn't say monsters, we're not lunatics. But again, and I want to emphasize this, it's not these, something like this could happen not because someone decides to be history's greatest monster, but because they decide to be history's dumbest gambler. And that they decide to take a risk that they haven't really thought through because they're desperate or because they've convinced themselves it would work and the whole thing goes down the tubes and the next thing, you know, now we're in a different world where we're in this terrible nuclear confrontation that nobody wanted. And that's why I keep coming back to the 1914 example. That was the war that everybody thought would be over by Christmas that nobody wanted. And by, you know, the end of that year, they were pouring hundreds of thousands of human lives into a meat grinder because they didn't know what else to do, because nobody had thought about what happens if everything goes wrong. Tom, just kind of to your point, I suppose when we have a certain high-ranking U.S. official who believes that he can get away with launching missiles into Mexico, it does suggest that there are people on our side as well who have a dangerously high risk tolerance. But I want to ask you one more question about a different kind of deterrence here, and that's about how Russia might try to deter NATO expansion. So we've seen that the NATO countries understand that adding states that are in direct conflict or a territorial dispute with Russia, like Ukraine and Georgia, that that would be dangerously provocative. But there does seem to be right now real movement towards NATO accession for Finland and Sweden. And like I just referred to, Russia seemed to understand from the lesson of Ukraine and Georgia that when you attack a state, when you start a hot war with a state or occupy some of their territory, you've essentially vetoed their accession into NATO because the NATO countries won't tolerate the risk of adding members that are in a dispute with this nuclear armed power. So are we worried that by giving our tip of the hat towards accession for Finland and Sweden, that Russia might indeed preempt their accession by aggression against one or both of those states? I'm not worried about that at all. If you think Russia is having a bad time handling Ukraine, watch them try to handle Sweden or Finland. Those are those are serious military, regional level military powers that have been training and, and readying themselves for attacks for, you know, 70 years. And they have top line as one of those Russian guys that Julia Davis finds on, on these talk shows said, you know, global quality 
weapons and not just NATO weapons. I mean, you know, the, the Swedes built some pretty good fighters all on their own. So I don't think that's going to happen at all. I think if anything, when this is over, NATO, and I, I was a go slow NATO guy in the 90s. I mean, in the early 90s, I was like, don't rush toward NATO expansion, bring in Hungary, Poland, and Czechoslovakia, you know, the Baltics a little more slowly, you know, work your way through this. I thought that the Clinton administration was pretty heedless about the way they did this. But by God, Vladimir Putin has not just changed my mind, but changed everybody's mind. In the last poll I saw is that Finland is now something like 75 or 76 percent in favor of joining NATO with about 18 percent against it. I mean, that's remarkable that if Finland and Sweden decide to join NATO, not only can Russia not do anything about it, but they will have to live with the knowledge that it happened because of Vladimir Putin. Future NATO headquarters should have a big portrait of Putin hanging in the lobby as the best friend NATO ever had reminding everybody about why NATO exists. To me, that's a tragedy. I mean, it's just a self-own, it's, it's an own goal, it's a self-inflicted wound on the part of um, the Kremlin. But, you know, Putin, just being an old school Soviet guy, just couldn't get NATO out of his head and out of his bloodstream. You know, there was a Soviet, just as a callback to the Soviet days, there was a Soviet diplomat who around 1990 said that, he said, we're going to do the worst thing to you we can do. We're going to deprive you of an enemy. And he was absolutely right, because over the next few years, you know, why was NATO expanding? Well, there were countries that really saw it as the kind of backdoor into EU membership, or they wanted to have a closer relationship with the United States. But, you know, NATO was not, I mean, we were still begging NATO to spend the 2% that we hoped they would spend. NATO wasn't going anywhere. It was kind of falling asleep as NATO always does during times of peace and prosperity. And just as they did in the mid to late 70s, and then when they invaded Afghanistan in 79, it's always Moscow that reinvigorates NATO. You know, if they would stop starting wars on their periphery, NATO probably would have stayed happily asleep and underspending and underinvesting in defense. But Putin is a terrible strategist because he's going to create the NATO he feared. He's creating the Ukraine that he hated and worried would come about. He has pushed his own country's economy, turned back the clock on that by a decade, if not more. And all because, I mean, who knows why? Because he spent too long in COVID isolation with a bunch of right-wing priests and ultra-nationalists, as far as I can tell. I'm not worried that somehow if Finland and Sweden decide to join that Putin's going to attack them. And Putin can Putin's having trouble getting out of the bear trap he's stepped into now. So I don't think that'll happen. I appreciate your optimism, Tom. I mean, we have seen so often how Putin has acted out of weakness rather than strength. It's usually that's the most dangerous position for him to be in. But I, I do hope you're right. And I also want to see if we can try to get in at least one audience question. I know that we've almost filled up the full hour here. Tom, do you have time to take one or two questions? Sure. We'll even take two. Oh, two. Excellent. So we'll try to be very quick with the questions, unlike me. I know Let's Mike has a Mike. question. Let's Mike, over to you. Hey, guys. Hello, Tom. I had the pleasure of meeting a man by the name of Dr. Furman out of Texas A&M University. And he's a specialist in nuclear deterrence. And he did a paper a couple of years ago with Todd Zexer of the University of Virginia. And one of their findings, they had two principal findings in their thesis. And they found that first, nuclear states demonstrate that formal defense pacts 
with like states that have formal defense pacts with nuclear states have significant deterrence benefits and that their second finding that placing nuclear weapons in a specific location actually does not appear to enhance the benefit of an ally nation state. Would you tend to agree with that assessment or would you say there are different externalities that might curtail that? I'm not familiar with that study. I think the second one, it depends on whether you're asking me, you know, if you're asking post-Cold War me or Cold War me, I think nuclear weapons had a significant deterrent effect on NATO's central front because we planted them right in the way of where uh, Soviet forces would advance. And so we basically said to the Soviets, see these, you're going to overrun them. Now think about what happens when you do that. The Soviet response to that, as best we could tell, they were planning on doing this kind of special operations blitz where they were going to try and capture a lot of those units and Pershing missiles. And, you know, I mean, they had no hope it would have required immense amounts of coordination. But um, it kind of got it that it really sucks if you're going to advance into Germany and you're going to overrun, say, you know, a base with nuclear cruise missiles on it, because the commander of that base is going to call up and say, I would prefer not to lose these. And that was the whole point of doing that. Now, in the post-Cold War environment, does it help, for example, to say, you know, to have nuclear weapons in South Korea and deter China or North Korea? I doubt it. And I think all it does is just make those countries target those weapons. I think the Central Front in Europe was kind of a unique example, a unique situation. So Furman and Zechter may be right that it's true. I think they're right in their first one. I think they're, that's a kind of a duh. I don't mean to disparage the study. I think it's an obvious conclusion that if you're allied to a nuclear nation, you get some of the deterrence benefit from that. I'm just not clear on what their parameters were on the second part. I'd say if you're talking about the Central Front in Europe, putting nuclear weapons in allied states is actually a really good idea if that is the path of invasion. I don't know if it mattered that there were nukes in in Italy, for example, but putting them in Germany and in the low countries and Turkey where there would be fighting, you complicate your enemy's planning with that. Today, to say, well, you're an ally of the United States, and so therefore we should put nukes in Japan. No, I think that wouldn't make any sense at all. If that's what they're talking about, I'd probably agree with the conclusions of that. Did that answer your question? Does that make sense? No, it did. And I was just going to quickly say they focused on defense packs, specifically with the alliance in that study. That's all I was going to say. Really appreciate it, Tom. Thank you so much. We're going to go to Herlin. This is going to be the only question that we're going to have time for. So Herlin, over to you, sir. Hey, thanks, Justin. Thanks, John. Tom, thank you for the discussion. Really great. One thing that you just said that I never heard anyone said in my realm of work, and I really just wanted to hear a little bit more, if you could elaborate on that. You said that you didn't like the idea that the president of the United States was the sole, I guess, power to initiate and terminate clear options. And I just want to know why you feel that way and what would be an alternative to that, essentially. Thanks. I actually wrote, if you Google around. I wrote a piece about it for USA Today, and I wrote another piece about it somewhere. And I'm sorry that I can't remember off the top of my head, but I wrote, I think for the national interest, I think Dana Struckman and I wrote a piece together for the national interest. And I wrote a kind of mostly serious, but kind of pie in the sky idea for USA Today a few years back, where I said in peacetime, there should be a check on the president's ability to just use nuclear weapons at will. 
And I said, you know, we could build in by statute, not get those constitutional issues. Can you do this, you know, legislatively? But that that in peacetime, the sole authority to launch nuclear weapons shouldn't rest alone with the president. I think that we've really gotten far away from the Article One war making power of Congress here with the president's ability to use a nuclear weapon and basically start a global conflagration. And, you know, as Richard Nixon once said, I could, what, he, during an interview, he said, I could get up from this chair and walk in the next room and 20 minutes later, 20 million people be dead. I think that that's just that I understand why we did it during the Cold War. I think that actually made a lot of sense in terms of unity of command during the Cold War. But I think we could build in provisions to say, you know, we have a two key system unless STRATCOM verifies that we're under attack, unless Congress, you know, votes that we are in a situation of ongoing hostilities, whatever it is. You could argue this out over and over again. I just am uncomfortable with everything coming down to one guy waking up the president and saying, uh, Norad says we're under attack, so turn the key. I think that's a bad way to live. Uh, the, the Russians, as far as I understand, and you know, this is, I understood the Soviet system better than the Russian system, to be honest with you, but the Soviets had a, actually had a more complex interlock on this than we did with the party and the army and the KGB all having to kind of throw in together. Now, I think I've seen some stuff, and Pavel Podvig is really the guy to ask about this. He's on Twitter as Russian forces, at Russian forces. But that they have a kind of three key thing where the president, the defense minister, and the chairman of the joint, or the, excuse me, the um, chief of the general staff all have to you know, have a kind of three key arrangement. I'm not sure if that's true, but I think anything that involves more than one key that makes any of us hesitate for a few minutes is a good thing because we are not, if you're wondering why I think this, we are not in imminent danger of a massive disarming first strike. No one can pull that off. I'm not even sure the Soviet Union could have pulled that off at the height of their power once we had enough nuclear weapons on submarines, because you're not going to get all the submarines at the same time. And 72 warheads on one trident is going to wreck your day. So I, I just don't think we need to be in that kind of late 1950s bolt out of the blue, you know, crouched posture where we're constantly trying to defend against this massive disarming first strike. I think that's silly. As Michael Howard used to say, not only that, but what is this war about? Tell me how we got to the point where there's this massive, you know, first strike that's meant to like strip away the American nuclear deterrent. And I think four years of Donald Trump being president, you know, where we really did kind of, at least some of us had worries about the president's emotional stability really brought that home to me. But I felt that even before Trump was president. I just don't think it's a wise idea. That's why I left the RNC and Republican Party, Tom, is because of the mental stability of President Trump, among other things. But anyways, yeah. I, 72, I didn't know that. I just assumed it was two or three. So you learned something new along with well, everything else I that think, I learned. Uh, about. I want to make sure I'm not making up numbers, but I think you're talking 24 tubes with three warheads apiece or something like that. But even if it's 24 tubes with one warhead, you're still talking about 24 <laughs> nuclear weapons on one submarine, and they're going to wreck your life. And, you know, multiply that times multiple submarines. Uh, you know, I'm doing old Cold War math of yep. 24 times three, but you're not going to get everything in one fell swoop. 
if you want to know how scary this all got in the late 60s, and, and this finally got turned back during the Johnson administration, but until Johnson, there was like this standing order that if there was a nuclear attack on the country of any kind and the president couldn't be located, that strategic air command standing order was launch everything. Jesus. Like if we were attacked and the president was somehow vanished, assume he's dead and just go for it. Just launch everything you have. And they quietly, I think around 68 or 67, they kind of just sort of tore that up and said, yeah, we, we can probably take that one off. Well, on the converse, just real quick, um, not, but, to, not to keep you long, but what happens if somebody like Trump wakes up insane and wants to start a first strike? Do you think the military would step in and be like, you can't do this? And then we have a coup? Wow, I don't know. Um, during Nixon's final days, the Secretary of Defense sent out a message basically telling the military commands, if you get any unusual orders, they have to be cleared by me or the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. That right there is an unconstitutional instruction from the Secretary of Defense. He was basically saying, if the president of the United, if the commander in chief orders you to do something, you need to double check that with me, which our constitution does not allow. But Schlesinger and Moore were so worried about Nixon's state of mind that they kind of did this preventively to say, you know, just in case you hear anything weird coming out of the White House, call me. So what would happen, though, if Trump's let's not say Trump, if somebody, if someone like Trump, instead of having a Mark S or a Mark Milley in the chain, you know, below him, Milley's not in the chain, but just had somebody below him and said, okay, sure, I'll verify the order. Then it comes down to the commander at Stratcom and it comes down to one four star who picks up the phone and, you know, the president says, this is the president, we're going to do attack profile, whatever, wing attack plan R, like Dr. Strangelove. And uh, the guy, another guy in the room says, this is the secretary of defense. I'm verifying this is the president. Go ahead and do it. You know, then one four star in Omaha has to sit there and say, huh, am I going to do this or not? My hope is to say not, depending on the circumstances. But you also don't want to build it into your nuclear command and control system that you've got one general can say, hey, this goes if I decide it goes. You want that. You want that command and control system to be highly responsive and speedily responsive as part of deterrence. On the other hand, what if it's night at Camp David and the president loses his marbles and calls up and says, I got things I want you to do? I don't know. We've never tested that out. We've always trusted, as James Madison once said, we've always trusted that, you know, the people we elect will be people of virtue and knowledge. But I'm not sure we can trust that anymore. Uh, Tom, this scenario that you described in Nixon's last days where the military brass and others and National Security Council were saying, if you hear any strange orders from the president. No, 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 no. Back up. It's not. Wait, it wasn't the National Security Council. It wasn't the brass. It was the secret. It was the civilian secretary of defense with the kind of wink we think with kind of the wink, wink at the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the SecDef is the guy who sent out this message saying, if you get any weird orders, you run them through me or Admiral Moore. Well, Tom, this is pretty similar to what happened after January 6th, isn't it? Uh, we saw the National Security Advisor, Bob O'Brien, putting out a statement saying something like, I'm proud to serve under the vice president. And I think some columnists were describing it as the pocket 25th Amendment, where more or less, 
the other high-ranking officials of government took over the day-to-day running of the government and were not going to accept commands from the commander-in-chief, the outgoing commander-in-chief at the time who had, you know, yeah, led this attack against the government. I mean, that's pretty much just what happened a year ago, right? Well, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs called everybody in and said, now, we all understand our oath of office, right? And people lost their minds about this. Milley is not in the chain of command. He has no operational commands to command, but he is the president's chief military advisor as the chairman. And this was, again, improvised. Our system of government runs on trust and norms. It really doesn't operate on black letter law at that level. Democracy runs on the assumption that everybody isn't a nut or evil. And that can fail without catastrophic consequences unless you're talking about nuclear weapons. And, you know, I think there have been times when people are rattled about that. And you don't have to be a Trump lover or hater to talk about that. You can go Again, you can go back to Nixon. He was drinking a lot. Supposedly, he was drinking a lot. He was kind of really on edge. And the Secretary of Defense just said, you know what, I'm just going to put a little insurance, unconstitutional insurance in my pocket to say, you got to call me. And I think you're right. That's what happened after January 6th. Mark Esper is making it clear that by the time he was run out of the out of town, that he wasn't going to do almost anything that Trump was telling him to do. But would Chris Miller have said no? Miller went up on a plane and said, I didn't know what was going on. Well, okay, you're the Secretary of Defense. You're supposed to know what's going on. But that's his story. And He's sticking to it. That concludes today's conversation. Again, huge thanks to Tom Nichols and The Atlantic, to our audience for their questions, and most importantly, to you for being here. As a reminder, like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a longer conversation that was taped live with audience questions. For information on how to join us and past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode coming this Monday. This has been Politics Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for being a part of this community. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, our co-founders, we hope to hear from you soon.